Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The name of this show isn't how to fix it. It's how do we fix it? There's a question mark at the end. And to both of us, Jim, that question mark is the most important part of the title. In these times of slogans and social media hysteria, our show asks questions about how things might be better. Let's talk today about cancel culture with Megan McArdle. Right. And and so this is one of the arguments you get into is like cancel culture isn't real because there have always been some things you couldn't say. And that's true. But now the things you can't say are on a much wider range of topics and a much broader range of things about those topics that you can't say. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? We've all canceled something, whether it's a subscription, a vacation, or a date. But canceling or erasing a person? It seems so brutal, so unforgiving and final. You know, people have been trying to get others fired or pushed out of public life for ideas that are verboten for many decades. We had the whole McCarthy era and the blacklist in Hollywood, but something changed with the advent of social media and it became a lot easier to single people out and find ways to intimidate their employers in many cases to cut them loose. Supporters of cancel culture say they're targeting people and institutions for endorsing systems of racism, inequality, and bigotry, and that this process allows new voices to emerge, voices that until now have been at the margins of society, while opponents of cancel culture argue this form of shaming causes personal injury and is a threat to free speech. We'll get into all this with Megan McArdle. Megan is an opinion columnist at The Washington Post and author of The Upside of Down, Why Failing Well is the Key to Success. She's a returning guest at How Do We Fix It? And we're mostly going to talk about a recent column she wrote called The Real Problem with Cancel Culture. Megan joins us from Washington, D.C. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thanks for having me. So, Megan, everybody's talking about cancel culture. And a lot of people are saying it doesn't even exist. What is it and why is it such a big topic right now? You know, I think there are as many definitions of cancel culture as there are individuals discussing cancel culture. But look, I think that it is quite clear that within mainstream institutions, um, 
there has been a shift in the last five years, kind of radical narrowing of what you're allowed to say on certain topics. 10 years ago, I would, when I was blogging for the Atlantic, I would get people, professors who wrote me and they would say, but don't publish this or don't put my name on it because I don't have tenure yet. And it would be some, like, this was not like, so that they could talk about their crypto racism. This was, they would be like, you know, I think maybe abortion in the third trimester is wrong, right? It was very, very mainstream opinions uh, that they that they were worried about would affect their tenure chances. And that's been a thing for a long time because these institutions have been leaning left for a long time. And the fact is, look, everyone, I don't care who you are, you tend to like people who you perceive as being like you in important ways. So there's always been an element of that. Um, in the last five years, though, it's become different. Just recently, I've started hearing from tenured professors who are actually worried about losing their jobs, which you never used to hear before. Just a little explanation for people who don't live in the United States who are listening to this. Tenured professors are professors with lifetime jobs. Unless they do certain very narrow things. Most colleges have committed to the idea that anything you said about ideas was academic freedom and you couldn't be fired for that. But it's not just co- it's not just universities we're talking about here. I mean, sure. it's it's journalistic institutions, but even things like the the head of PR at Boeing got fired the other day for something he'd written back in the 1980s when I was 14 years old. Okay, so <laughs> um, yeah, it's crazy, right? And and so this is actually a big element of it is that you can get fired for something that wasn't part of the understanding of your job when you were hired, there is some completely new norm. And that is a real shift. And now you could argue, look, um, this is what we need to do to make these communities inclusive for previously marginalized people. Right? There, there are defenses you can mount of it, but I think it's very clear that it exists. And the reason it, it's clear to me that it exists is that so many people I speak to are afraid. They're terrified of losing their jobs. Um, now, Megan, you're of the center right. Jim is of the far right. (laughs) (laughs) Radical way out there. Yeah. Um, No, And I'm from, I'm from the center left. And to me, it's deeply sad. And I oppose cancel culture. It's deeply sad that the left has fallen into the trap of copying Trump, who uses Twitter as a personal performance platform and is an an exemplar of cancel culture. Jim strongly disagrees with what I just said. What do you think? Um, I think that Trump absolutely does. I mean, look, I think there's always been this tension and a lot of the people who on the right are complaining about it are also people who, for example, tried to get Professor Steve Salida fired. Admittedly, he had resigned one job and was on his way to another. But, you know, a lot of conservatives were really enthusiastic about that. They were really enthusiastic about getting other people fired for stuff they'd said. So let's let's be honest. Everyone is a little bit hypocritical about this. Um, you know, the letter, there's a letter written to Harper's, which is what has triggered the, the latest round of discussions of cancel culture by 153 center-left intellectuals who said this is happening and it's a problem. Um, and the response to it, a lot of people seem to be simultaneously arguing that the cancel culture wasn't real and these people weren't really afraid. And also they weren't afraid enough, right? And I think it is real. Um, it is happening at more and more publications. This is not an argument, by the way, about including more voices. 
right? I, I think absolutely, like, all of these places have more work to do about being more representative of the United States. Um, a lot more work to do. And not just racial diversity, which is really important. We need economic diversity. We are all, you know, you, you go into these places and it's just a, a wall of, of people who are all educated at the same fairly small collection of elite institutions. You know, there's a bunch of things going on here that I really think, like journalism, for example, needs to work on. What about opinion pages in mainstream publications, op-eds in newspapers? I think you can argue that, look, you know, most of these op-ed pages are run by white men, um, that the arguments are, that are going to get more attention, that are going to be run more often, are probably the arguments that strike them as reasonable. And that is probably going to be inflected by who they are. Um, but I, I don't think that there's a real argument that five years ago, conservatives could keep you from saying defund the police. And now finally you can say it. And the price of that is that conservatives can't say deploy the, the military against rioting. I think it, it's that it's, it's all one way and it is a chopping off of discourse. And I think that's really, I mean, I, I am a big free speech advocate. But you made a point earlier about shifting norms within institutions about what's permissible. And, and you've mentioned um, the case of James Bennett, a great mm -hmm. editor who we both know. And, and who, was the, who was the person who gave me my start as a public facing journalist uh, with my, you know, writing under my own name? Yeah. Former editor of The Atlantic and then editor of the New York Times opinion section. I think one of the great editors of the generation that spans between us, I guess we could say. And and he got in trouble for publishing a column by a right-wing senator. Do you want to just take up the story from there? Yes. Senator Tom Cotton argued that the government should deploy the military to states that had not requested this assistance um, in order to quell riots. So I think this is a terrible idea. I'm not a big fan of Tom Cotton. Um, I certainly think that just for a conservative, federalism is pretty clear that like you you shouldn't be shoving the the regular army into a state that doesn't want it. Uh, that said, it was within the realm of normal argument. Well, a lot of people, wrongly in my opinion, support Cotton's view. So the idea was in in an opinion pages where you have opinions expressed that this, this was one that should get an airing, right? Um, part of it depends on what do you see, what do you see an op-ed page for? And James Bennett, I think, would say that the purpose of an op-ed page is to feature the arguments that are current in American life that matter to show people stuff that may be a minority view, but it's interesting, but also to allow people who are making what looks like either a you know, a, a, a large minority or even a majority view held by a U.S. senator, that that is something that, that it is the job of the New York Times op-ed page. But there are other people who don't see it that way. Well, some of the arguments against the piece reflected this new trend in our society. They didn't say it's wrong or ideas like this shouldn't be expressed because they're wrong. It said, this is dangerous and I feel endangered. I'm an employee of the New York Times. And the very fact that this piece ran puts me in danger. So how does that new dimension kind of intensify these discussions? Thank God I grew up before the internet, right? I got my first email account when I was 23. And 
it was a very different way to grow up. And if you've grown up in a world where, you know, especially for the younger generation, right? I understand emotionally why they're kind of skeptical of free speech, but I, I think that there are real huge dangers to both the approach of trying to narrow the discourse and also the, the particular way by using Twitter and Slack mobs to, to make it happen. Um, well, you raised a really interesting question, which is about the internet and the impact of social media. To what extent is cancel culture a creature of Twitter? Oh, 100%. I mean, not just Twitter. There's also within companies, there can be Slack. We've seen this with a number of kind of high profile cases now. Very yeah, Slack, Slack is like a, an internal email sharing platform. It's more like a kind of a bulletin board. It's more like Twitter than it is like email to me. Um, and you've seen this with Barry Weiss, who was apparently at the New York Times, according to her, but also according to some other uh, journalists who posted, yes, I've heard the same thing. Just to uh, jump in, Barry Weiss uh, was yes. until a few days ago an opinion columnist uh, yes. at the New York a, Times. A center-left but heterodox opinion editor at the New York Times who has just left with a, a very <laughs> uh, stringent resignation letter that says that cancel culture is really bad at the New York Times. And, and Barry's been a guest on our show. Um, she wrote in her exit letter, Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. Yes. Um, and I wrote something similar in my column uh, last week, which was that, you know, places seem to be handing the reins over to Twitter. And that the problem with that is that Twitter does not, I mean, 280 characters is not a good format in which to make an argument. And and the thing is, if you let Twitter edit your op-ed page, you were you were in the business of making arguments, and you were literally handing your institution over to people whose biggest skill is not making an argument, and that's really deeply problematic. Again, I want to try to be charitable and like and and say, how does this look to people who disagree with me? Because they have good points. So one thing I will say is just that if you think about if you think about this technology, it's a technology that is good for building kind of emergent coalitions, right? If you're into anthropology at all, what you understand is just how much of humanity is our amazing ability to build coalitions, which is just much greater than any other primate. Um, and Twitter just kind of supercharges coalition building. It makes it really fast and frictionless and easy. But I think it's just a fact that you have these technologies that have enabled young people to build coalitions to try to force their institutions to change fairly radically. And I think the pushback for me is both that free speech is, you know, I really do believe that the cure for bad speech is more speech, um, but also that institutions are valuable. And the way we know institutions are valuable is that people are trying to make them change and trying to get control of their process for selecting faculty or op-eds or whatever. And institutions, they're kind of in a lot of ways antithetical to what Twitter does. They are slow. And they are slow because institutions are conserving something and carrying it forward in the future. And if they were too quick to change, they wouldn't last very long. More from Megan McArdle coming up. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. We've been talking a lot about the New York Times. We've been talking about universities, elite institutions. Many people believe that the debate over cancel culture is largely among elites and pales in importance to the distress caused by the huge crises at the moment, for instance, coronavirus and the debate over racism. What's your take? I mean, what is so important about this right now? Okay. Number one, absolutely true. The media loves talking about itself. On the other hand, I will say that like, Articles about this have done really well. So apparently we're not the only ones because we're getting more views for this stuff than there are reporters left in the United States. Um, Second of all, you know what? Yes, the media cares about this, but there's also the possibility that we need to do this now. I'm just saying that they have the kind of, there's something worse happening in the world is just not a very effective or useful rejoinder to people saying this is a real problem. So it seems like what's shifted isn't just that that a lot of institutions have lurched to the left, as long as they're still capable of discussing ideas and allowing people to discuss ideas fairly. I mean, I love Mother Jones magazine, as left as you can get, but they do great journalism. And and it's and for the most part, I think it's fair. They they deal honestly with facts. It seems now there's a new standard. Facts that don't fit the narrative shouldn't be allowed. And people who who don't advance my side. It's not that we argue with them. Let's just push them entirely out of the conversation. Is that what's happening? I think there's a a fair amount of that. And I think, look, the truth is that free speech is always most beloved by people who feel that their speech is threatened. But I I think it's really dangerous. And the example I give, this is my personal experience, right? I was certainly a cheerleader for and a minor participant in the attempt on the right to ban immigration and free trade as topics that were under debate, right? You just don't, we don't debate those they're happening. And you like you crazy immigration restrictionist, like you can have your website and rant about it and you can write an article in national review periodically, but no one is going to pay any attention to you. Um, And we used to congratulate ourselves on how we had prevented the troglodytes from being allowed to put their economically illiterate views into American policy. And then Donald Trump, you can't exclude the views of like 30, 40, 50% of the population. That's not something you can do with control of the universities or the New York times or any other institution. That's actually something that you have to do by convincing them when they are numerous enough, there's no alternative to persuasion and I think when when you think that you're scoring points by telling those people, shut up, shut up, shut up, you are terrible, you are evil, your views are evil, like you might score points in the short term. But I really think it, it 
blows back on you really hard and in really destructive ways. And I think, you know, with Donald Trump, it's not just that Donald Trump then comes in and starts building the wall and starts playing games with H-1B visas and all of the other stuff he has done and, and blows up our trade agreements. But he's also messing with our non-trade agreements, right? So he's messing with NATO. He's messing with other alliances. And he's also grotesquely mishandling a pandemic and people are dying. And that was the price of having arrived at, we're not going to allow the troglodytes to have input. We free trade people actually turned out to be arrogant jerks who had gotten some stuff, big stuff wrong. We did not predict the China shock. And it turned out that China was so big that it actually did cause catastrophic results for people in the labor market because the labor markets could not adjust fast enough to absorb all of those people who were displaced. So number one, we were wrong. And I think that one of the reasons we were enabled to be wrong was that we had decided we weren't going to have any arguments about it. Um, but the, the second thing is that like the unintended consequences of winning in that fashion uh, can turn out to go far beyond just the argument that you were trying to have and the cause you were trying to advance. So be careful what you wish for when you attempt to squelch debate yeah. uh, on your side, whether your side is the left or your side is the right. Yes. That, that what could happen down the road is a resurgence for the very forces that mm -hmm. you're trying to put out of business. Yes. I think that that is, it's, it's incredibly dangerous. And I think that while speech can be brutal, it can make you feel terrible um, it can enable people to build their own coalitions to do bad things. That's all true. Um, but people forget scale matters. If racism had never been invented and there were just one random dude living in, you know, Kentucky somewhere who just randomly decided he did not like people with darker skin than his, that wouldn't be a problem if it were one guy. Prejudice is a problem when it's at scale. It's when everyone has the same prejudices that prejudice is a problem. And similarly with cancel culture, when there are a few ideas you can't say, that's actually, I think, healthy for a society. Every society does need boundaries. Um, but when it starts creeping up to be, you know, half the country's viewpoint about matters of incredible social importance is inexpressible in all of the institutions that curate American ideas, that's a very different problem. So, Megan, we've seen a number of well-known contrarian journalists face the ideological guillotine. Are you next? Uh, I hope not. I mean, I guess it's not impossible. Um, my institution is wonderful and very committed to viewpoint diversity, which I've been very lucky with. Your organization um, being, the as a reminder, Post. the Washington Post. Yeah. I have uh, wonderful colleagues who I love and who have never made me feel anything but supported. Um, and I feel very lucky to work at an institution like that um, at a time when there is phenomenal pressure on so many mainstream institutions to kind of narrow the range of acceptable views. Um, I could have done something different. I decided to be in mainstream media and not in ideological media. Um, that brings with it a whole host of benefits. Um, I feel that I am a better journalist because I'm surrounded by people who often don't agree with me about really core stuff and make me clarify my argument and make me like hone that argument and get it past them. 
You know, it, it is good discipline to have to get it past an editor who actually disagrees with you on the issue. Critics of cancel culture say the problem is mostly on the left. But there's a very vigorous argument going on right now inside the Democratic Party between progressives and moderates. And that's not happening very much at all among elected Republicans. So is this whole problem of shutting people down much more widespread across ideologies than cancel culture critics admit? Uh, okay, so I would say a, a few things. Like, First of all, conservatives had that argument in 2016. I was part of it, right? We lost. Yeah. My side lost. Um, and, you know, Trump got nominated, but we had that. We had pretty vicious arguments, uh, much more vigorous than what was happening, than what is now happening in the Democratic Party. Um, I will say there's a skew in where this stuff occurs, right? I mean, I think the the kind of thing that, which is basically right, the observation that um, conservatives have disproportionate political power because of their geographic distribution. It's not like a deliberate, it's not gerrymandering, which is actually trivial. It maybe gains them a few seats in the House. What actually uh, influences it is just that conservatives very rarely live in counties where everyone's a conservative. And a lot of Democrats live in counties that are like 85% plus Democratic. And it doesn't do you any good. Once you've gotten over about 60% or 55%, it doesn't do you any good to have those extra voters there. You want them actually spread out, but they're not. They're in cities. Um, the left has complete control at this point of, of all of the mainstream cultural institutions. They're, I mean, with the exception of the business press, but the left has the rest. They have all of academia. They have all of Hollywood and have had for decades and decades. Um so this has actually created this really interesting dynamic where both sides are completely convinced they have no power and that they're just <laughs> unjustly, right? Like, and in fact, because like Hollywood's really valuable. If you look at things like Will and Grace, this, this television show, again, for foreign readers, is a television show featuring the first main gay character who was, right, a lead character. Uh, great show. And um, that show actually seems to have meaningfully changed how Americans viewed homosexuality and gay rights. You could right? also make the same argument for modern family too. Yeah, or, absolutely. Or all in the right. family. Yep. I mean, so, so having Hollywood's actually really powerful. You can do all these really powerful stuff, but everyone, they don't look at that. They just take that as granted. And then they're like, but I don't have disproportionate representation in Congress. And conservatives on the one hand have disproportionate representation in Congress. But what they look at is that every day when they turn on their television, when they watch movies, when everything they're assaulted by what are basically microaggressions. So I spent a lot of time trying to convince conservatives that systemic racism and microaggressions are real. And the way they should know this is that that's what they're complaining about when they complain about being shut out of academia and about the way that the mainstream media sources talk about them. And it's true. It's really hard to pass an ideological Turing test, to represent someone to themselves the way they see themselves. And, and, that's, um, and that's why when we see... Uh, institutions that really don't have, we have very few people who aren't from that mainstream yeah. left kind of kind of block. They don't even know when their arguments are, are weak because no one ever disagrees with them that they know. Exactly. And that is bad. That is fundamentally undermining what academia is for. And so I think that there are real reasons that it would be good for society and it would be really good for those institutions themselves to have more viewpoint diversity. I think it's really hard though. I mean, I think it's just extremely difficult, especially in this moment. Trump is an incredibly polarizing figure, which makes it 
there's, I mean, it's really like, I, I feel like justifiably difficult to go to my liberal colleagues and say, we should have more of this, <laughs> right? Earlier, you used the word persuasion and the idea that that the best way to to change the world in the right direction is to persuade people, not to just drive them out of the debate. How do we bring persuasion back? Look, people like people who are like them. They just do. And so however you think of someone being like you, you are more likely to hire that person. And even when, even if you think like, I am not racist. So it's the same kind of thing. You only need to feel like I really care about having other liberals around and I just want one or two who share my views to get a situation where you've just polarized into like, it's all liberals, right? So I, I wrote this I, at really great length. The great thing about blogging was I just had no discipline. <laughs> just like on and on and on and on and on. And the funny thing was I was, I was actually trying to talk to the left and had no success. It was one, it was actually kind of wonderful because it was like, they were trying to, they were literally saying things that you would not be surprised to see in like a TV movie about racists in the South in the fifties, right? Like, no, of course we're not discriminating. It's just that all of these people are really stupid and they're money grubbing and they don't want jobs in academia anyway. And they all have stupid ideas and they, they're hateful and we don't like hate. I mean, it was like crazy, the like level of just, and this is from academics who are writing professors who are angrily coming in to be like, you don't understand how this works, right? Um, Trying to, so, trying to just to be clear, trying to defend why they yes. don't hire conservatives. No, trying to argue that they don't that like they're not discriminating. It just happened to be that all of the conservatives are dumb mouth breathers who don't belong on campus. Um, so and also like that all all conservatives are young earth creationists, which is a minority view even among religious conservatives. Um, so you know, I wrote this, what was really interesting was that a bunch of conservatives were like, oh, 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 so now like all this stuff people have been saying about systemic racism, I just thought that was like nonsense. But now I understand what you're saying, right? We connect to arguments where you can empathetically make someone like feel what it's like. And conservatives do. Conservatives have legitimate grievances with mainstream institutions that lean left. And when they could access their own grievance and then see how their grievance might actually look a lot like this other grievance that they had been kind of tribalistically just reacting to whenever anyone brought it up as like, it was just a power move to make them relinquish their priorities, right? It's not a power move. It really exists. It's a huge problem. This is America. It shouldn't happen. Like we are better than that. But I, I did change some people's minds. And I think that's how you have to start. It's got to be with empathy and it's got to be about meeting people where they are and not just persuading them um, that everything about them is wrong and that like you're going to... Too many people in America now, their idea... We, we have to have a conversation about this. We have, a, have, have to have a conversation about that. And it always turns out that their idea of what a conversation is, is like you are going to sit quietly and I'm going to lecture you. And then periodically you are going to pipe up to go, God, I didn't even know how wrong I was. I am so sorry. I am horrible. Like I grovel and abase myself. Like that's not a conversation. And we have to have actual conversations. And that is going to mean like dealing with viewpoints that we really don't like. We are all in the same country. We rise and fall together. And if we don't find a way to make ourselves rise, we will fall. Megan McArdle, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Richard, it's that time of the show where we give our recommendations. What are you recommending this week? This is a quick one, and it has to do with how I prepared for this show. I went to a site called allsidesnow.com, and they have perspectives on cancel culture and many other topics from the left and the right and the center. And I find them invaluable, especially when I'm struggling to make up my mind about how I feel on a specific issue. I can look for different points of view. Okay, Jim, well, we have differences on, on this topic, on cancel culture. So here's where I agree and disagree with you. Uh, you've been very concerned about this for quite a long time when I was not. And you're right about the challenge. Wait, what? I'm sorry, Richard. I didn't quite hear you clearly enough. What was that you said? I said, you're right. You're right, Jim. (laughs) You're right about the... (laughs) You're right about the challenge of public shaming and cancel culture. And and I'm I'm a liberal and agree that debate and discourse are much better ways to deal with what's wrong in our society than Twitter mobs and shaming and trying to erase or cancel those you disagree with. But this is where we don't have the same point of view. But I don't agree that this is primarily a problem of the left. It started with the right, and it continues with the illiberal behavior of President Trump, who is doing his best to discredit pillars of democracy, from furious attacks on the media to assaults on judges to the voting process to trying to use uh, the government to uh, to go after, for instance, uh, the merger between AT&T and Time Warner. He's tried to block Amazon, the owners of the Washington Post, from bidding on Defense Department contracts. This, to me, is part of a similar problem. I think that many critics of Trump are are copying him in their behavior. This is a really <laughs> – I think this is a really kind of a stunning argument, Richard, when we're seeing examples of moderates and centrists being vilified by the far left across the board in our culture in all kinds of institutions. And our response is, well, but actually it's all Trump's fault. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. No, I'm, no I've said that it's a real problem and that you're right to, to sound the alarm on it. I'm just saying that it doesn't only pertain to the left. Trump's behavior is over the top in many areas, and and I'm all for criticizing those excesses. But Trump doesn't control the high ground of our culture the way that the left does. And what's scary isn't that there are more liberal professors or people in Hollywood. That's all fine. It's when people start saying that certain ideas can't be permitted. That didn't start with Trump, and and that won't end with Trump. What frightens me is the degree to which the the completely benign ideas that are now considered something on the right can get people completely kicked out of public life. The head of Boeing, uh, Boeing PR getting fired because back in the 80s, he wrote a, he was a Navy pilot and said he had doubts about whether women should be in combat. It was a mainstream view, in fact, a dominant view at the time. Our thoughts have changed. He got fired. Meanwhile, does the name Kathy Boudin ring a bell with you? No. She was a member of the Weather Underground, involved in multiple bombing plots. She was then involved in a Brinks armored truck robbery in the in the 80s, in which 
a security guard and two police officers were killed, went into hiding. Has she been banished from public life? Is she is she verboten? No. Today, she's a professor at Columbia University and the co-director of their Center for Justice. I'm arguing passionately that we have a ridiculous double standard that only applies to people whose ideas are retroactively defined as somehow conservative or beyond the pale or intolerant in some way, when in fact, a lot of the intolerance is really coming up on the left. But I'll grant you, Trump demonstrates a lot of intolerant language. He encourages his followers to do it. It's just as bad when they do it. I don't think it has the same long-term cultural influence as cancel culture on the left. Yeah, I just disagree. I mean, I, I, you could look at numerous government officials who've been hounded out of the Trump administration. They've lost their jobs, too, while there have been uh, reprehensible examples in our culture. There have been also reprehensible examples in our government as led by the current president. I do think that you may laugh, Jim, but I do think that those are very serious and have long lasting repercussions and may well affect the conduct of future American governments, both left and right. And yeah, I just laughing because the thing I hate most in any kind of uh, political debate is sooner or later getting backed into somehow defending Trump, which, I, you know, which I... I don't want to do. I hate doing. And and I completely agree that a, a lot of this behavior is, is is beyond the pale. But the problem of cancel culture is deep in our culture and in our elite institutions. And it's really going to haunt us if we don't work on bringing back some genuine tolerance of a range of viewpoints and the ability to argue with people we don't agree with. Couldn't agree more. Let's stop there. Well, well, well we're both on the same Before side. somebody brings up Trump again. <laughs> it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our show is a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Uh, please check out our website at DaviesContent.com. And also, thanks very much to Miranda Schaefer for putting this show together. She's our producer. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and 
and climate neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.